Episode 135, Peter Pan. Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> what you're about to hear is a collection of several segments we have put together over the past year and a half regarding Peter Pan, just in time for the new origin story coming to theatres at the time of this episode's release. We start off with a little back and forth from Sharon and I regarding why we were always nonplussed by the 1953 Disney classic animated movie. Then we move on to the discussion with Daniel Floyd, in which I do admittedly rather dominate proceedings by taking the House of Mouse of six decades ago to task for some pretty appalling racism, something which you'll find out later was totally present in the source text written by J.M. Barry. Then we close out the animated version and Sharon and I discuss the 1991 live-action Spielberg sequel, Hook. Beloved by many, but again not us, and for that we apologise. Especially since we recorded this before Mr. Robin Williams passed away. And if you've stuck around long enough, we close out with an infinitely more positive piece that I wrote about the truly excellent 2003 version directed by P.J. Hogan, in which all the deeper aspects of the mythos are unlocked and explored at last. So everyone got your happy thoughts and your pixie dust? Then let's go! Let's talk about its strengths first, shall we? If you have some, yes. Oh, God, I was hoping you would have some. (laughs) Uh, Quick, we need Daniel Floyd. I have odd things I liked about it when I was a kid. Um, But they have lost a lot of their weight now. Examples, what did you like when you were a kid? Um... Because I saw this at the cinema, my uh, uh, parents took us to see it unexpectedly, and I was I was kind of bored. I got to admit, you know, this is, I'd already seen Ghostbusters at this point. This this yeah. was weak source. I I quite liked the the look of it. I suppose this was this was probably one of the first Disney's I saw, mm. um, and we had uh, a load of Ladybird Disney books, so I was already pretty familiar with the the characters and the um things like the lost boys in their little animal costumes and um uh i think i probably had the same book yeah um and i quite liked wendy's night dress at the time it's a bit um the bit at the end where she goes it's okay father i'm ready to grow up now no conflict like there ever was any well, no, a dad just turns around and says, oh, no, I was a bit hasty. Don't worry about it. Brilliant. So whatever he said in the heat of the moment, shouting and screaming and hollering and dragging the dog out by the neck um, has all passed. Oh, hang on. That's a strength. That's a strength. Uh, the bit where he uh, talks to Nana and says, oh, come on, Nana, and it shows that he's not such a bad sort. That's a good sort of little cinematic shorthand to the kids. He has to present a certain image to his children to be the disciplinarian, but in reality his heart is breaking. That's yeah, a sweet moment. It is, but the fact that he then comes back from the party and is like, 
you know, never mind everything that I said earlier, he's technically being an inconsistent parent. Yeah. That's that. What are those two things that children don't like? Um, inconsistency and emotional inaccessibility. He is a double qualifier. Yeah. And it could it's scary be when somebody acts one way and then suddenly acts another, just turns on a dime. That's, that's like a crazy person to a child. Yeah. And of course, it could be argued that, you know, put this next to Mary Poppins, which obviously the, there are parallels that are introduced to the Peter Pan story as a result of Mary Poppins. Mm. Um, where And obviously the 2003 version draws more deliberate course, parallels. Absolutely. But this idea of the father figure at this particular point in history being if if the mother is the one who provides the children with unconditional love and never questions <coughs> their um uh, you know what I'm thinking of, don't you? Yes, I do, until my mother committed suicide in 1984. Um, That's from uh, Best in Show, folks. It's, yes. uh, it's the great Jane Lynch. Indeed. Um, but yeah, the idea that, that your mother is the one who loves you and adores you and, and sort of builds you up to have faith in yourself and, and have complete confidence in everything you are and who... and what I have confidence in me. Um, and then your father... I'm just looking at pictures by... of Julie Andrews here. <laughs> oh, you carry on. Um, and then your father grabs you by the scruff of the neck and socialises you. Uh, in other words, teaches you to hide all of that. King and... Edward's on the throne. It's the age of men indeed so so yeah come on streets i like the bit where they're in the home underground and the pond on top sort of stops in the ceiling so it's like a that there's a floating pool above them that's neatly captured i like tinkerbell's design oh yeah tinkerbell's lovely she, I mean, she's got more depth than both Peter and Wendy. She, she goes through more does, of a journey. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah she, um, she reacts with uh, – well, it, it's, it's all expressiveness because she can't talk like Julia Roberts, so she has yeah. to express everything. Um, uh, not like Ludwig Signer, who does it because she's a mime from Cirque de Clune. Uh, but um, uh, she, she is expressed by the animators who make her, you know, super cute, but this sort of devilish little – pixie thing and and it, it's it's no wonder she's still iconic and in her own movies and and she in fact became uh, emblematic of the disney logo too so even though you got the when you wish upon a star from pinocchio um i want since this was actually supposed to be the second film from uh, walt disney um it's tinkerbell doing the fairy pixie dust stuff and she's also hot which helps and our weaknesses it's bland it's soporific. And when I say it's soporific, I can't watch this film without nodding off. It's around about the time when they get to the Lost Boys. Everything is totally inconsequential at that point. I actually like the beginning more because there's more grounding in uh, family matters and, and you can sort of you can deconstruct what's going on a bit more. Once they get to the island, there's no deconstruction to be had. It's just a kid's adventure. And it's not that much of an adventure. And 90% of films that come out now are kids' adventures and they're so much more impressive than this. It's so like the other day we were watching The Spy Who Loved Me, Lara and I. I was trying to show her a classic Bond just to say, look, this is what James Bond is like. She was bored out of her skull. And I thought there is nothing, nothing to appeal to a child today about Roger Moore's James Bond. Nothing. You know, it's, it's an action movie, but it's so creaky and pathetic and embarrassing by today's standards for kids. It's, it's a great history lesson once you're old enough to really, you know, grasp that it is a piece of, of, of the times. But... 
uh, you know, in, in comparison to the modern day stuff, you can't hold a candle to it. And Peter Pan, likewise, is just a consequence-free adventure of which are ten a penny now, with the latest in cutting-edge computer graphics to at least keep you dazzled. Also, here's another thing. It's stupid, and there's goofball humor, and it's like a Looney Tunes cartoon, but it's not really funny, so it's not as funny as a Looney Tunes cartoon. And I thought, well, Emperor's New Groove's got goofball Looney Tunes humor. Yes, but it is funny, and Emperor's New Groove actually does have drama, and pathos, and consequences, and arcs, and characters. The second star to the right shines in the night for you. Shall we go with the positives on Peter Pan before I lay into it? <laughs> it? It should be mentioned that Alice in Wonderland did catch on in the 60s for some in reason. In time. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, there, once there were everybody reasons. was high, it went down a storm. <laughs> yeah, so this was the, more of a slow release thing. Yeah, yeah the, and by the 70s and 80s, everyone else started kind of embracing it as being, actually, this is very good. Yeah. So, uh, And it. I also want to bring up the point that um, the fact that Catherine Beaumont, who voiced Alice could still do this teenage version of her voice convincingly in her 60s for Kingdom Hearts is yeah, super badass. I checked that. I was like, did they just <laughs> get bits of her voice from the film? Nope. She actually did re-record it as a 60-year-old woman. That is an astonishing voice actress. That's awesome. Yeah. She had the interesting link. She is also Wendy. And she also did Kingdom Hearts stuff as Wendy. Yep. It's captivating. <laughs> Exhilarating. Jubilating and guaranteed to lift your spirits. Walt Disney's Peter Pan. You'll never, never forget the magic. Rated G. Coming soon to a theater near you. So, Peter Pan, go for it. Anybody who wants to say nice things about Peter Pan. I like Tinkerbell. I like Tinkerbell as well. Oh, the whole Marilyn Monroe thing? Hearsay, it's actually not Marilyn, based on Marilyn Monroe. She was around in 1953, but she hadn't had a major starring role yet. I actually like a lot of the characters. Like Hook and Smee are, are an awesome villain-henchman combo. Like, loads of personality. And Peter kind of has a lot of voice charm, too, despite a lot of youthful immaturity. Uh, I also feel like this is maybe one of the most 
thematically interesting Disney stories so far, probably just because of the source material, but because like Disney's output up until this point hasn't had a lot of complex themes to it. It's mostly just been fairy tales or simple morality stories. And the Peter Pan story kind of raises all these questions about accepting adulthood versus clinging to childhood. Like it, its hero is in a state of permanent arrested development on his little island and both in kind of appealing and also unappealing ways. I mean, Neverland seems entirely constructed to cater to his exact mental age. <laughs> like, uh, he, he has the fun and conflict with pirates without any permanent consequences ever. He's got mermaids to flirt with and his adolescent understanding of sexuality. He's got a bunch of other boys to pal around with. The island basically just seems to exist for him. And which, I don't know, it just makes it kind of interesting to think about in terms of the, in terms of the themes. And I wonder if I haven't actually seen the, uh, original play i wonder if that's a lot stronger i wonder if this kind of got rounded out and softened as disney versions tend to do they did have to trim several bits of it uh, well, well major question before i go about it uh, have you seen the 2003 version with uh, jason isaacs and jeremy sumter i did i remember liking it a lot okay uh sharon do you want to say anything positive about peter pan um Everything positive that I have to say about Peter Pan is about the story, not yeah. about what Disney did with it. Okay. Um, yeah, they, they trimmed out a couple of fairly crucial bits. Regard, like the, There's a major part of the stage play where uh, Tinkerbell um, has to prevent Peter from drinking poison accidentally and drinks it herself and then dies. And um, to bring her back, the audience is asked to proclaim that they believe in fairies. Walt didn't think that would work with a cinema audience, so Hook sends Peter a bomb, and it almost kills him, but doesn't. And then that's left kind of like, well, did that do anything or not? And then Wendy jumps off the plank, and Peter rescues her, and there's no... that They never really address what happened there. It's not a huge deal. I think at its core, this isn't actually too bad at all, a version of, of Peter Pan. It's just that the 2003 version is so, so much better... And I think I'm probably more in its corner because nobody ever recognizes the 2003 version as being so, so much better. Captain Hook in this version is a buffoon. The depiction of Native Americans is so appallingly racially and culturally ignorant as to derail the whole film for me. The What Makes a Red Man Red song being one of the worst aspects of it. I, I, I am actually just mortified with offense uh, for this uh, on behalf of the entire Native American community. I, I really need to bring up a rant here, don't I? Um, hold on a second. I think I actually did write a rant. If you bear with me for a moment. You guys carry on talking about Peter Pan for a second while I try and find this. Let's see. I think one of the biggest issues for me is how nothing of a character Wendy is. It seems almost unkind to compare and contrast it with the 2003 version, but they they deepened her character so much and and gave her so many um, intersecting motivations and uh, presented how torn she was between growing up and staying a child. And I found that completely fascinating. And Wendy in this version is there there is absolutely no question that she is mumsy mum. she's she's yeah she's maternal already it i mean the the yes there's that whole thing about she doesn't want to move out of the nursery but there's not really any 
given reason why. She likes being in the nursery because she gets to read stories to her brothers. And when she goes to Neverland, she reads stories to the um, the Lost Boys and she gets to be their mother. And that it just... It, it, if you consider that the whole point of Peter and the whole um, examination of how he is refusing point blank to grow up is thrown into sharp relief by how he interacts with Wendy. If she's nothing, that element of him is nothing too, which means that you've stripped out a good portion of the strength of that story. In fact, if, if, if I could argue that Alice in Wonderland and 101 Dalmatians are my favourites because um, they are, whilst not completely and utterly faithful adaptations, certainly very sort of almost spiritually sound adaptations of books that I love, of, of um, you know, full-length stories that I love, that Peter Pan undermines a lot of the story that I, I enjoy is possibly one of the reasons why I don't like it. Well, a mother, a real mother, is the most wonderful person in the world. She's the angel voice that bids you good night, kisses your cheek, whispers, sleep tight. Your mother and Helping hand that guides you along, whether you're right, whether you're wrong, your mother and mine, your mother. Right, um, this is what I actually put on the forum. Things that I consider to be downright horrible in this film. The portrayal of Native Americans. It's easy to pass this off as just harmless ignorance like the crows in Dumbo, but here are some pointers. The African people brought forcibly to America as slaves were not systematically wiped out in various acts of genocide. While I in no way want to diminish the unbelievable suffering these people went through, their integration into society took centuries and still has a long way to go, but they finally got a president, so we're on the right track there. Two, the actors portraying the crows in Dumbo were African-American. Clearly, their dialogue, while street ebonic for the time, still felt authentic. Candy Candido, who voiced the Indian chief, was as white as they come. This makes it something like a blackface routine. I believe they call this red face. Especially if you're singing a song, what makes a red man red? Number three, the Indians in this speak like horrible amusements for ignorant Caucasians. There were a lot of Westerns at the time, and the more culturally unaware productions had them speak in this manner. We um, want heap big fire water. Think back to the future 1953 here in terms of boneheaded America in general. The story about what makes a red man red, something to do with him blushing, is rather akin to asking why Chinese people are yellow. It's fucking appalling. Basically, Disney, you don't get to do this. White people, you don't get to laugh at this. So yes, this film is not a favorite. Why does he ask you how? Why does he ask you how? Once the engine didn't know all the things that he know now, but the engine he sure learned a lot, and it's all from asking how. 
translate for you. Panda means what panda means, and panda means that. thing I'd like to add to my assessment of the crows in Dumbo, the lead of which is named Jim Crow. Folks outside the US won't be so familiar with the term, but it's actually relating to post-reconstruction laws that enforced segregation all the way up until the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Basically, if you've been following New Century, it was a little after the time I'm writing. In our timeline, the US government decided that though former slaves were now free, they should not be seen as equal. So while in retrospect the crows are actually pretty positive characters, their depiction and cultural associations put them closer to, as Bob Chipman said, the punchline to a gag rather than actual characters with agency in their own right. However, the Indians in Peter Pan, all played by white actors, spout a litany of made-up gibberish directly about their own culture. One that, as we established, was nearly wiped off the planet by white America. If there was ever a need for respect and clarity, this scenario was it. And the era, 1950s, simply didn't call for that level of sensitivity. Instead, it's just goofy and deeply ignorant. And it remains, for me, the most abiding misstep in the studio's celebrated career. No, it's not like I loved this film all the way up to the 2003 Peter Pan. I was just kind of indifferent to this film. I saw it as a kid, wasn't particularly enamored of it. Then the 2003 version was like, now this is a Peter Pan film I can really get with. And one aspect that's readdressed in that is Native American actors in the Native American roles. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I understand that this was not uncommon, terribly uncommon in a lot of media at the time. And that to an extent, not nearly to this extreme but the, it's even a bit of an element present in the source material as well but it still makes it super uncomfortable to watch now and really makes it a lot harder to it makes it a lot harder to like what is what works about the movie because it is just a big chunk right in the middle that just yeah yeah ultimately if you're adapting a work that is now antiquated or uh, has culturally uh with the word culturally insensitive material in it it is your duty when you're adapting it for your time and for time going forwards to work out a way to put that across uh sensitively now they did it as sensitively as people in 1953 did anything which is to say not very everything that i love about the 2003 version isn't present in this or is watered down in this and everything that i hate about this isn't in the 2003 version. So really what I'm, I'm doing here is making a, an unfair comparison to something that was made 50 years later. 
But then again, Alice in Wonderland is better than the Tim Burton version, so it swings aroundabouts. Anyway, um, anything more to be said about Peter Pan? Oh, I, I hate the Captain Hook, like, running across the water like Wiley e. Coyote stuff. There was quite a lot of, in this era, of Disney imitating Tom and Jerry with uh, Lucifer and the, and the Mice and uh, Wiley e. Coyote. Do you, do you notice Wiley e. Coyote somehow managed to get in to the Sword and the Stone? He's actually in it. He's a wolf, but he's in it. Sort of. Yeah. Kind of. Um, I, I, I love Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner and stuff. I just, I just don't think Captain Hook running across the water going, Smee! While this crocodile chases him and bites his bottom. It's just tedious to watch. I don't know. I actually kind of like the uh, more slapsticky. I know it is more lighthearted, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it is better, obviously, than I'm sure is what was more a more a serious portrayal in both the source material and obviously in the 2003 film that followed it. But for what it is and for the story that it's in and what it's presenting, like I find the caricatures they've created of Captain Hook and Smee in general to be a pretty fun little villain combo. Oh, I do like the um, yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me song. That's great. Is that in it? Actually, I don't know. Think it did is I in this dream one. that? That's, I did yeah. dream that. <laughs> the thing I liked yeah, was I the thing that wasn't in the movie. Pirates' life is a wonderful life, a roving over the sea. Give me a career as a buccaneer, it's the life of a pirate for me. Oh, the life of a pirate for me. Never bury your bones, for when it's all over, a jolly sea rover drops in on his friend Davy Jones. Oh, his very good friend Davy Jones. Hang on a second, I'll just check that. Yo, yo, yo. See, I thought they exported that to the ride. Um, I think it might have been created for the ride. There was, there was a pirate song, but it wasn't that one. And it sounded kind of similar. It had a like, prolonged, whoa, the pirate's life is a wonderful life. That's, that's the one. Dilly no, hang on. I never, no, never, never, never that, think about that. <laughs> that's the dodo. These are all blurring together. Oy. You'll find but live every minute for all that is in it, the life of a pirate shark. Oh, Nah, it's not. It's not anything part of Peter Pan. So, but it would have been cool had it been in Peter Pan. A nice yeah. little. This is our Disney pirate song. It totally would have fit. But no, bloody hell! Why did I imagine that? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Dan, I don't mean to... to, to uh, you and I have uh, differing um, perspectives on the benefits of slapstick in this one. I mean, I love it in An Emperor's New Groove. Love it. Oh, yeah. The Emperor's And New I'm Groove. not saying that... Uh, I don't know, it feels like this is a lighter... It's a much lighter-hearted sort mm-hmm. of uh, presentation of the story as it is, so that I don't know that a more grounded what Captain Hook actually mm. 
is meant to be would have fit. I think it would have been kind of totally weird and inconsistent, which is not to say that it's It's hard to better come back or worse. Jason it's just, Isaacs. Imagine, basically, he plays it much like Lucius Malfoy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And what I remember of that was really enjoyable. I liked it a lot. I don't know if it would have necessarily fit in this movie. Of and course not. No. Nor, not and also not to say that this portrayal is itself better or worse. I think I think the portrayal of Captain Hook fits quite well and is very entertaining for this Peter Pan movie. Also, Bobby Driscoll, the uh, kid who plays Peter, annoying little gobshite. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that didn't help. I can't like him. He's horrible. So, yeah, not a fan of this one. I think one of the things that I did like about it is very much a retrospective thing, but there were this was the first one that I really started consciously seeing um, elements that had been used in later Disney films. Like, for example, The Crocodile mm-hmm. is basically... Um, Lewis. Yeah. Uh, in, from, uh, um, from Princess, Princess and, the Frog. and the Frog. Yeah. He's also uh, the crocodile in um, uh, the Robin Hood, voiced by the guy who played the Indian chief in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, that, that voice is great coming out of a crocodile. I see no upset crocodiles anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, be... I... archers, start your arrows. That's an awesome voice. <laughs> It's it's brilliant. It's just that it shouldn't be coming out of a uh, yeah a American chief. <laughs> Sorry to bring everyone down, but genocide. So, <laughs> and it does need to be stressed again. Tinkerbell is pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. You know, Tinkerbell is actually kind of wonderful. Sorry. After all of that shit um, from me, Tinkerbell is is fairly. Um, she, she's got this one. The fact that, uh, like the with the original stage play, she uh, communicates in bell ringing sounds as opposed to actually talking like Julie Roberts. One thing that I really like about her is the fact that she gets to be a um, a hero character and who a bad has girl. exactly. She has vaguely unsympathetic behavioural traits, mm. um, but she's not punished for those she's it's not like um you know because she is if, technically she's Wendy punished and, for her good behavior when she's yeah. a hero when she's she's selfless for peter but we don't really get to see that yeah. also it's it's a, an exercise in visual storytelling and being able to actually communicate with bell ringing and actually just the facial expression and the body language of this one character exactly how she's feeling Although I did love the comment in the, um, I think it was for the Jungle Book behind the scenes material, where they said that basically the reason that you got to be so good at um, purely visual storytelling as uh, a Disney animator, particularly if you were a storyboarder, was that Walt didn't like to read things. <laughs> so if, if you couldn't tell your idea purely visually, it wasn't going in. Never smile at a crocodile. No, you can't get. Friendly with a crocodile Don't be taken in by his welcome grin He's imagining how well you'd fit within his skin (laughs) Never smile at a crocodile Never tip your hat and stop to talk a while Never run, walk away, say goodnight, not good day Near the island, never smile at Mr. Crocodile of etiquette in your head but there's always some special case time or place to forget etiquette for example 
One positively must not wear a pleased expression on his countenance when confronted with that large lizard-like amphibious reptile who has long jaws, armored skin, and webbed feet, and who is known as the crocodile. It has been discovered that one simply cannot cherish an amicable or trustworthy relationship with the aforementioned species. In addition, it is mandatory that one does not become irresistibly drawn into the erroneous belief that the lateral awkward extension of his lips means that you are entirely welcome. It is much more reasonable to assume that he is contemplating how you would look in a lizard suit. His. <laughs> Clear the aisle and never smile at Mr. Croc. You sort of pick up on quite what a, uh, would you say control freak regarding Walt? He, 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 he knew what he liked, he knew what he didn't like, and it sometimes took a lot of convincing from some, that's from some very assertive people to get round him on some things. I, I don't think control freak is a, 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 an overly exaggerated way of putting it, no. Overlord? Megaloman. <laughs> Creative director. That's <laughs> the same thing, isn't it? Creative it, it, genius. It can very easily be, yes. <laughs> Again, this is actually behavior I'd kind of like to see encouraged because of what he managed to achieve. If you go to his Wikipedia page, just looking down the reference points to just click on what he's achieved in his life, you just go down and down, and your finger gets tired looking at everything he's done. He's Andrew Ryan. Just He, he is a great man. But... It is possible to be a great creative director without being awful to people. Yeah, somehow Lasseter manages it. And I, I mean, actually, Dan, dude, is, is Lasseter a nice guy? He's actually, yeah, quite a nice guy. But, I mean, like a lot of great, a good creative leader will generally push you to do your best and beyond. That, like, they won't. And it's a way that they often kind of describe Walt's, uh, how Walt handled things as well, where it's not that he will. He will like push you and push you and slave driver like, no, do better, do better. This isn't good enough. He will just set a bar pretty high and you and you will say, that's a pretty high bar, Walt. And Walt will say, I think you can do it. Basically, his faith, he puts faith in you that you can do this. And because he sees he's able to see the ability to do this and the people he has under him. And it often did turn out that they pushed and fought really hard and they could do it. And it resulted and it results in good work. That's generally what a good creative leader does, I think. Yeah. So, See that and, that does sound generally positive. That we're not talking James Cameron throwing things at people because <laughs> they didn't do what they were told. It, I do hear a surprising amount about like great, creative, wonderful people. They always seem to have some story about throwing chairs. So, like you know, Shigeru Miyamoto and it's a, and Walt Disney, I'm sure, threw a chair in his day. Mm. Yeah. I, Intense, ambitious people. I expect you definitely do get some control freaking and slave driving now and then. It's it's not going to be a grandfather Walt all the time. That's absolutely for sure. Yeah, but uh, yeah. But you can't get that long list of achievements without the ambition. You don't just accidentally achieve all those things. Not without throwing a few chairs. Yeah. <sighs> I would say Peter Jackson doesn't appear to throw chairs, but that's beside the point. <laughs> he has somebody do that for him. <laughs> yes. Fran throws chairs for him. <laughs> no, he actually. If you if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, there is uh, I can't remember her name, but she's that woman who basically. Oh God! You, she basically yes. you have to get all the extras in order, get everyone. But you have to be loud and angry and uh, 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 boisterous and. Um, assertive and everyone just has to jump into line because otherwise the director has to do that and it kills his creativity because he's too busy getting angry. Yeah. The worst, the worst I can see Peter Jackson doing is kind of like 
Tommy was so tipping over his little director's chair and like, eh. <laughs> Tommy gets up. That's a terrible image. Just like running along the shelf and slowly nudging the CDs off. It's like two, it's just like two nights. He's really mad, but it's like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they broke their promise, and I don't care anymore. <laughs> How do we get to Neverland? Fly, of course. Fly? It's easy. You think of a wonderful thought. Any happy little thoughts? Uh-huh. Like toys at Christmas, sleigh bells, snow? Yep. Watch me now. Here I go. It's easier than pie. He can fly! He can fly! He flew! Now you try. I'll think of a mermaid lagoon. Oh, underneath a magic moon. I'll think I'm in a pirate's cave. I'll think I'll be an Indian brain. Now everybody try. One, two, three. We can fly, we can fly, we can fly. Now the original ending was ignored by Disney until the sequel, the 2002 straight-to-video Return to Neverland. It was filmed for the 2003 version but was left on the cutting room floor and it had Peter Pan revisit Wendy in adulthood. He is shocked to see her old and useless to a child but her young daughter Jane is the perfect age to go off on a new adventure. Both Return to Neverland and Hook resurrect the old murderous rascal for Peter to once again lock blades with, implying a battle that will rage on and on, with Peter never losing, but Hook never staying dead, like some pirate Jason Voorhees. I would be intrigued to see a new ongoing series of movies that further explore both Peter and Hook's arrival in Neverland, as seen in the quite good sci-fi channel miniseries Neverland. Notably, this saw Bob Hoskins return to the role of Smee 21 years after playing him in Hook. Since Bob died in 2014, as well as Richard Briers the year before, we are distinctly Smee-free right now, and we need a new one. And actually, I do have to add an addendum to that previous statement that I pointed out that uh, Peter returns to a Neverland free of pirates. Uh, he doesn't in the Disney version, uh, having seen it again. Hook, you know, is chased off by the crocodile, uh, but he doesn't die, and the pirates all get just thrown overboard, but they can probably get back on their ship once Peter Pan drops it off again with the Lost Boys, and I suppose that, that does sort of return the balance to normal. In fact, technically, it's it's more of a return to normality than the end of the book, which is why nothing is really achieved. In fact, this one doesn't even have Mrs. Darling having to wait up for her children. When she comes home from the party, the kids are there already. There's not even the slightest amount of, oh my God, my kids are gone. All drama is drained away in this version. And now, Hook. Stories are true. 
He's come back to seek his revenge. Only you can save your children. You must make yourself remember. Remember what? Peter, don't you know who you are? Have to fly. Have to fight. Have to crow. Have to save Maggie. Have to save Jack. Okay, he's back. Who? I hate, I hate, I hate Peter Pan. Weaknesses first on this one, because again, we want to end on a high note. It's silly. It is silly. It's not inconsequential. Lessons are learned. There's definite arcs to be had here, but we're going for the weaknesses first. Um, It's deeply patronising to children. It feels like it's a movie made by committee of a bunch of adults who don't really know what kids are like, so... The kids behave like these weird automaton freaks. There's a bit where a a little kid, the only kid who believes in Peter Pan, starts feeling up Robin Williams' face. And actually, let's do a bit of a synopsis first, shall we? Because it's possible that a lot of listeners won't have heard this. You're going to have seen Peter Pan at some point, but you might not have seen Hook. And you might be curious as to what happens. David Banning. David Banning. I'm thinking of David Banner. Peter Banning is Robin Williams. He's a high-stakes businessman. He deals in mergers and things. He has a mobile phone and um, is, is very dedicated to his work. He has an English wife and two lovely kids, one of whom a boy named Jack likes baseball, the other whom a girl named... What's her name? Maggie. You had to think that, didn't you? She yes. is of little consequence in this film. Uh, is acts as Wendy in a school play of Peter Pan. They get on a plane and go across to England where he meets his grandmother, Wendy, who claims to be the actual Wendy and claims that J.M. Barry listened to their stories um, and uh, made up Peter Pan as a result of it. She's uh, actually his wife's grandmother. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. He calls her Granny Wendy all the time, though. Mm. Yeah, well, partly because she's his wife's grandmother and, and some families do that, and partly because she set up an orphanage which he was raised in. And everybody calls her Granny Wendy, and that's the yeah. thing. She takes in young boys and finds them homes and families. Um, and, uh, yeah, she claims that this is the window where she met Peter Pan. And um, things aren't going well between Peter and his son, Jack. Uh, he didn't turn up to the baseball game, even though he promised he would. His word is his bond. He says it so many times, but it's absolutely abundantly clear he breaks promises left, right and center. Kids get snatched away in the night while Peter's off at a party um, congratulating Granny Wendy on changing the lives of all of these um, orphans. And it's, it's a wonderful, touching moment. She's played by Maggie Smith, uh, Miss Professor McGonagall from uh, Harry Potter. In fact, a lot of this feels like Harry Potter. It's Steven Spielberg... Uh, directing, though it feels like Chris Columbus. It really feels like Chris Columbus. In fact, if you'd told me that Steven Spielberg started this film and then took a very long holiday and let Chris Columbus do the rest, I'd go, stands to reason. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it's got uh, John Williams doing the uh, scoring, and it seems like he's about to break into the Harry Potter theme all the time, but he never quite manages it. But I suppose this was one of the steps on the way there. Anyway, so it's a Spielberg film. Kids get snatched away in the night. Ostensibly, we are told by Hook, because we never actually see it. He appears to be turning up in the form of green mist. 
So kind of paralleling the uh, effective kidnapping that goes on in the original Peter Pan story, although it's kind of coercion in that one because uh, Peter wants a mother for the lost boys to tell them stories and he, he spots Wendy, thinks she might be good maternal fodder and then effectively kind of gets her to ask to go see Neverland and makes her think it's her idea, which is a bit disturbing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Tinkerbell turns up, uh, played by Julia Roberts, tells Robin Williams, you're the Peter Pan. He goes, nah. She goes, nah, totally. And then kidnaps him again and uh, takes him to ne- Neverland in a sack. That's the best bit of the film, all the lead up to that. After that, when they're in Neverland starts to show its creakiness simply because its assumption as to what kids like and what kids are like feels way off the mark in comparison to sharper modern contemporary films such as the Pixar films, for example. Yeah. Um, Robin Williams is in total disbelief. He's a lawyer. He's um, he, he's acting like a stuffy old guy. He gets dumped on the pirates, um, claims to Captain Hook played with... Uh, pantomime bravado by uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman with great hair and teeth, hair and teeth, darling. And um, he, he says, I'll be Peter Pan again I'll, to get my kids back and promises that he'll get, and Tink says, I'll get him back to fighting fitness in a few days. It's kind of like Rocky. And um, <laughs> Do they have a montage? He's a wrecking ball. And uh, yeah, they, they pretty much do have a montage, don't they? Yep. Yep. And, uh, yeah, then he falls into the sea and then some mermaids kiss him and then they, he gets levered up in a shell and Tinkerbell's asleep, so it feels like a really staggered edit. Like, Tinkerbell saw him thrown in the sea and then went home and went to sleep, and in the meantime, he got put in a shell and winched up to the Lost Boys' home, which has got, like, a giant skateboard park in it made of wicker. And... <laughs> And lots of paint all over the walls and a basketball court. And it's basically like an even softer version of that area where all the kids in the Foot Clan hang out in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Only they don't have cigarettes. No. That might harden it up a bit if these Lost Boys were smoking. But it would just feel really wrong. Anyway. Yes. Because, <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the Foot Clan is supposed to be a bad thing, but this is supposed to be a good thing? I think it sort of is. If you kids had the heaven. Most- if you had them all smoking, they'd have to, have to regrade it to an 18 certificate. Nowadays, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, the, the new leader of the Lost Boys is named Rufio, played by Dante Basco, who plays Prince Zuko in Avatar. His voice got better, that's all I'll say. Yes, it did. Although his performance is actually one of the best in the film. It is pretty impressive. Yeah. Although he was one of the oldest um, of the Lost Boys. He was born in 75, so Clearly. that I think would have made him about... 91. 16. 16, yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's the one who basically is like, no, this is bollocks, this guy's, a, this guy's a total liar, he's not really Peter Pan. And only one kid believes that he is Peter Pan, and he's sort of caressing his face with these gentle, very scrupulously washed and manicured child's hands. And I thought to myself, this is wrong! There should be a divide between Peter and the children. It's an adult being effectively manhandled by children and they should have like savage hands, but at the same time deft, you know, wild movements and sort of like they should be pouring at his face, but in the manner of not someone gentle. 
but it's just so syrupy and so sweet. It's like that episode. Do you remember the Twilight Zone movie where uh, all of the old people, I think this is the Spielberg section, actually, all of the old people grow young again. It's that kind so of So cocoon. Sort of, yeah. I, I was going to say, actually, that's one of the real downsides of this is that it is Spielberg in full-on emotional poking mode. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is, when, when you hold back on that stuff, it's so much more effective. It's the, it's the difference between someone trying not to cry and someone straight out crying and blubbing and looking like a wreck like Tobey Maguire. Mm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, Peter goes into training. He trains to be Peter Pan, finds out that he's Peter Pan, uh, he gets his happy thoughts, which is his kid being born, and then turns into Robin Williams' man-child and becomes utterly insufferable for the duration of the film after that. Yes, he does. My good Lord. Although there was one point where he's having like a rap battle with Rufio and he calls him a nearsighted gynecologist, which is a great sort of offhand uh, insult, but really inappropriate for a, a kid's film, which is this patronising and this like skewing young. Mm. Also, it's illogical. I, I'm not quite sure what the downside of being nearsighted and a gynaecologist is. I suppose it, it's... What difference would it make? If you're a gynaecologist, you tend to be quite close to the thing you're working on. Being nearsighted wouldn't make a lot of difference. It's a, it's a, a man's gag. Yeah. Some man who doesn't really think too much about his wife in that scenario and probably doesn't really feel comfortable about it. Mm-hmm. So after this, basically the whole film uh, becomes about man-child Robin Williams googling about the place, um, act, acting like uh, somebody um, who just stopped at six years old. Yeah, like Jack. In fact, this is probably how he got the Jack gig. Right. Yes. I see what you mean, yeah. yeah sorry, not his son, Jack. The, yes, the, that was the film, film Jack. The film Jack, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, now I got that. Oi, um, so we're still on weaknesses, aren't we? Uh, it's, it's cloying, it's sweet, the, especially during the pirate shantytown bit, which is the, the most of the last third. Um, it feels like a very cheap film. In fact, it feels like a pantomime, like a, a cheap, creaky set. A lot of like when the kids gear up and fight the pirates, and the pirates are getting splattered with paint. The food fight is is grotesque. <laughs> like you know that they're they're eating pretend food, and the kids are sort of you know eating invisible food, and then Peter um, starts to play with them, and suddenly the food becomes real, and it's like oh okay, well that's pretty good. And then he starts a food fight and starts throwing play doh because the food which actually you know, is most throwable, doesn't actually look like food at all. It just looks like Play-Doh. And it turns into a horrible, messy food fight. And, you know, this is where I found that balance, you know. I do love kids' films, good kids' films. I do love chatting about childish things. But I don't like food fights. That's the balance. I don't like wasting food. Apologies. I think what sums it up for me in terms didn't of... didn't like the food fight in Meet the Robinsons either. No. Um, I think what sums it up for me in terms of the, the attitude to childhood and the leaving thereof that frustrates me immensely in several interpretations of Peter Pan and other films as well, um, it can actually be crystallised by Wendy's line in the Disney version of um, I have to grow up tomorrow. 
the idea that childhood it has a specific delineated period it ends at the and there is a date when it changes and you are no longer a child and you are now an adult and the idea is that while you are a child you will be innocent you will be savage and heartless uh, you will be protected from uh, not only all perceived outside dangers, but also any comprehension, knowledge or understanding of those outside dangers. Childhood is not a box that you go into when you're born and come out of when you turn 13. It's a gradual period in which you are supposed to learn all of the knowledge and defences that you will need to assist you as you get older. It's absolutely pointless to protect your children from the bear in the woods, but never tell them that there is a bear in the woods until they're 16 when you kick them out and tell them to walk through the woods. And, oh, by the way, there might be a bear in there. So you're saying your father's not supposed to take you aside age 13 and have him say, you're mine now. Well, no, but that's entirely separate to what I'm talking about. (laughs) But you see what I mean, though. Yes. That kind of uh, suddenly that you know you're, you you've put away childish things. You're out of the nursery on the stroke of midnight. Yeah, but that's that's ridiculous. I mean, the the idea of um, there being a rite of passage when you reach a certain age that signifies that you are entering adulthood. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point is that that is um, that's simply a, a show. That's to demonstrate to everybody else that you are um, ready for people, you know, the world to start treating you as an adult. But your family, your parents, they should have been gradually working you up to being an adult all this time. So you said uh, that while we were watching it that I was right, that finding the balance was the point of these films. I don't think that is the point of these films or these stories. I think I've taken that from these films because they're so full of reverse yardsticks of ridiculous extremes of childishness and stuffy old gittishness. I think that may have been, when I said that that's the point, I think what I kind of meant was that's what people who that's what in the way we think that's what we've taken away from them yeah um but yeah they they do have a tendency to demonstrate the uh the swings and roundabouts but it it's just it's the epitome for me of a phrase which i hate which is let them be kids and i understand where people are coming from when they say that and i understand that they don't like the idea that that children are uh under pressure to grow up too soon and no children shouldn't be obliged to do adult things too soon but at the same time it pisses me off royally when people decide that children are not even allowed to know about adult things too soon and i really phrased that badly that's not quite what i meant yeah Um, i was gonna say i didn't want to cut in because i didn't want to be (laughs) no but i i just think that that Knowledge and understanding, basically, that is the mindset that leads the government to say things like, we don't think children should have sex education at school because it's not up to us to decide when they're old enough to know about what happens between adults. Now, when you may potentially have parents who still think that at 13 their children are too young to know about that kind of thing, that's just in the realms of ridiculousness to me. Kids need knowledge. People need knowledge. People need as much knowledge as they can possibly cram into their heads. Your life is short enough as it is for society to, 
for society to arbitrarily decide that for the first 12, 13 years of it, there is knowledge that you are not permitted to have access to just because, because childhood. I find that very annoying. And this is probably all just an, ex uh, an expression of my frustration at being told by people in the library at eight years old that there were books in the library that I wasn't supposed to read because I was a child. And my mum had to actually come in and sign something to say it was OK for me to read books from the adult section. On the other hand, the strengths of this film are all the bits that actually lead back to the original source text. For some reason, those the, the recurring themes in Peter Pan, when they're treated seriously, are the absolute best aspects of them. The uh, Just the sight of the, the ship in um, the Disney one just being borne up on the golden pixie dust is actually quite breathtaking. And the uh, all of the references to um, when Peter was extremely young and, and uh, his flashbacks... And when he, he goes back to the house underground, which they erroneously say is the Wendy house. No, 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 no. It's the house underground. Anything to do with Maggie Smith, anything to do with the, the idea of her as Wendy, anything that basically has adults taking the childish stuff seriously is great. Not because it's grown up, but because it's real. They make the fantastical real. The stuff I don't like with the kids is where they make the fantastical not real. Nothing about their playful little scampy escapades actually rings true. That's the thing. Mm. There is, there's no, um, like, you know, they're, they're skateboarding all over the place. And it's, it's all just stuff that's been fabricated for them to do. It's not actually stuff that kids would genuinely do. Not like that. It wouldn't look like that. They wouldn't have their bamboo armor look like that. They wouldn't have these paint guns. All of that stuff that is their play is make-believe. But it's not, it's not real make-believe. Does this make sense? The idea yes. that there is, a, there is a validity, there is an authenticity to real make-believe. Something like, if you've ever read the uh, webcomic Axe Cop, that's real make-believe. That's stream of consciousness, childish, made-up stuff. And it's great stuff. It has no consequence to it, but it feels authentic. This is childishness by committee. And it's just bollocks. So it's the strengths of Hook are the truths and the weaknesses of Hook are the bollocks. Mm. Well, I think a lot of it is, I know what you mean by childhood by committee, but I think they've gone for the things which will be uh, visually appealing. It's all the bright colours and the um, uh, soft textures and the... It's like Pat uh, Sharp's Fun House. Yes. <laughs> Frankly, we should be grateful everything isn't covered in foam. And we don't get Melanie and Martina. And we do get Julia Roberts in a dress. Oh, yes. And she is smoking. Got to say, continuing the, uh, the attractive Tinkerbell thing there. But also, because, again, Tinkerbell has an arc. Julia Roberts' version of Tinkerbell feels she's actually in love with Peter and yet there's a tragedy to it because she knows she can never be with him. She entreaties him to sort of, she reaches out to him, but, you know, ultimately he, he needs to go back to his family and she knows that. So there's a, a tragic arc to Tink in this. I did, that That was actually something I perceived to be um, a great strength of the film when I was younger. I really liked the fact that they'd added some extra layers to Tinkerbell. Mm. Um, I do think looking at it with my haha, adult eyes um, that they have in fact uh, 
added layers and then oversimplified. They have interpreted it as Tink's very strong feelings for Peter must be human desire. She's a fairy. There are other possible interpretations of those feelings than just romantic love. So it, it's it's a little bit kind of putting that back in a box. <laughs> Tinkerbell in tears. Disney World forces teen to change out of costume. April Spielman's Tinkerbell costume wasn't too revealing or too offensive. It was too good. The 15-year-old was forced to change out of her Tinkerbell costume at Disney World last week because officials feared that little kids may try to get an unauthorized autograph from an unlicensed Tinkerbell. <laughs> Unlicensed Tinkerbell is our The Pixies cover band. <laughs> Sorry. Oh yeah. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, right. Um oh one other thing, uh because we mentioned uh, the Native Americans or the Indians in the uh, uh, Disney episodes and because we, I, I mentioned them earlier, uh, they do turn up in the 2003 version. And uh, it would appear most of the background actors are Native Americans, but the actress playing Tiger Lily is not Haida tribe. Uh, she was born in Canada. She's First Nation. Ah, okay. Oh, Canadian actress. I'd say that. That qualifies. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. There you go, then. Um, she's not been in anything else, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, the, this film was notable in, in the, the 2003 Peter Pan. They treat these guys with respect. There's uh, a little, a fun little ceremony where they uh, sew up a brave warrior that, uh, t- with extreme solemnity that turns out to be Michael's teddy bear. And, uh, but at the same time, it feels authentic, and they, they appear to have gotten actual uh, Native Americans to, to play them. There isn't a stupid little song. They don't do red face Absolutely as it should be, since I suppose you could just edit them out entirely, which is what Hook does. Mm. It's like, not touching that one. Yeah, I think there, there is one lost boy who has feathers in his hair, that's it. Not the same thing. No, oh no, I'm well aware that it's not the same thing, but they seem to have thrown that in as sort of a token, look, there are Indians here. Yeah. So yeah, in retrospect, there is one Peter Pan film that needs to be seen. You could probably skip the Disney one if you've never seen it. Maybe just see it for animation. It's only an hour and 17 minutes. Have a nice little sleep. Um, if you, Of course, if you have seen it, but have not seen the 2003 version, for the love of God, please do see the 2003 version for all the reasons I've detailed above. Hook is an oddity, one to be seen if you actually, you know, hooked on to the uh, earlier ones. But not essential and, of course, not technically canon if there is such a thing as canon, since now it's gone into the public domain. I think you can do unauthorized stories to do with Peter Pan. They have to be authorized by the Great Ormond Street Hospital to actually uh, be considered pan-canon, I suppose. Panon. Panon. I really like that the, the end of Hook, Hook effectively gives up and says that you can't kill me. What would Neverland be without Captain Hook? And Peter goes, yeah, okay. And then he, he leaves with his kids. And I thought, that's actually pretty good. You know, there's a there's a balance to that. And then he pulls a concealed weapon and tries to kill Peter. So 
Um, then the crocodile falls on him and apparently eats him. I'm under the impression that Hook just hooked himself up inside that crocodile and then when everyone had left, he just hooked his way out of it. In fact, that would have been like, you know, if this is, if this is a modern MCU film, it, that would have been the, the epilogue. Mm. But no, uh, in this one, you know, Hook straight out dies and Pan goes home making a, a character named Thudbutt who is a fat kid who rolls downstairs and crushes people with his girth. He makes him the new pan. To his credit, the uh, kid playing Thudbud actually does uh, his uh, level best to uh, be a, a, a fun, likable character. There's not much to him, but uh, he's, uh, I suppose, a, a word, you know, the only lost boy that really stands out aside from Rufio. Mm. Well, he's the one who probably asks Peter the most questions and gives him the most advice about mm. being in charge which i suppose from that perspective he does make uh, sort of the logical choice to follow in peter's footsteps since rufio's dead yeah rufio goes from fighting with hook to being stabbed by hook to dying in peter's arms gasping his last to being dead within four graceful seconds it's almost utilitarian it's like right we've got to do this then this then this then this and he's dead uh, it's it's quite depressing actually to watch Simply because we've we've seen the whole. I at least I got to kiss you one last time, so many times before. It's almost like Spielberg's gone. Yeah, this now he's dead. But when Robin Williams isn't being too um, over exuberant, uh, <laughs> Dustin Which Hoffman's happens occasionally. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman is uh, extremely fun as uh, Hook himself. He's not Jason Isaac's fun, but he's excellent and uh bob hoskins it's, it's great to see him place me one of two times so yeah as i said the strengths of hook and the strengths of uh the disney peter pan are when it really relates back to the original text and the strengths of the original text are when what's happening in the text transcends the actual words words which can sometimes be quite troubling especially nearer the end.
Last and the polar opposite of least comes Peter Pan 2003. And this is a good place to tell you all that my second novel is out on the Kindle store. It's called Secret Rooms and it's book two of the New Century series. If you prefer reading to audiobooks, then this is a great place to get into my adventure across parallel worlds. And if you would prefer it in paperback form, then that should be available any day now, along with The Cartographer's Handbook. Tiger's Eye will also be available in the next few weeks, as I'm just finishing off the final chapters. New Century and School of Movies are funded by Patreon, so a huge thank you to everyone who supports us and keeps the bills paid. Extra thanks to our special patrons this month, Ian and Megan Hopwood, Nick Grugan, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, David Garcia-Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisholm, Livio Dela Cruz, Scott Corzine, Dan Mayer, and Erish Travers. Now let's hear about a really good Peter Pan. Sorry I'm whispering, by the way, it's one in the morning. As a big fan of the podcast, the temptation to say hello to Jason Isaacs was too much to resist. In case you forget to say hello to Jason Isaacs on the programme... Yeah. Update, world leaders say hello to Jason Isaacs. Right-hand corner, it says something about hello to Jason Isaacs. When there, there genuinely was somebody there with a placard saying hello to Jason Isaacs. Peter Pan originally appeared in a section of J.M. Barrie's novel, The Little White Bird in 1902, originally published in serial form in Britain. That section was so popular it was republished as Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens, a 37-page document you can get on Kindle for free. In 1904, Barry wrote a play called Peter Pan, The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, elaborating on the initial Kensington Gardens tale, which is about a baby that refuses to play the life game and flies off with the fairies. The play introduces Peter as a young boy spying on the Darling family and stealing the three children away to Neverland. It is from that play that the classic Peter Pan story detailed in the 1953 Disney animated version became enduringly locked in people's heads. There have been many publications since, including Peter and Wendy by Barry himself in 1911, and you would think that there would be dozens of film adaptations in the years between then and now. This isn't the case. In terms of authorised works, there's the 1924 silent movie, the 1953 Disney version and its 2002 straight-to-video sequel, and in 1991 there was Spielberg's Hook. But nobody ever mentions the 2003 live-action adaptation by P.J. Hogan, and that is what this is about. I recently read aloud to my daughter, Lyra, Barry's novel based on his play. It was hard-going. I was amazed to find most of my favourite aspects were gone and the tone seemed to veer, especially by the end, between whimsical, syrupy coddling. When the first baby laughed for the first time, the laugh broke into a thousand pieces and they all went skipping about and that was the beginning of fairies. Wistful looks back into childhood, all the lost boys' laughably serious, protracted wars with the pirates, and onto embittered attacks on the nature of children to be gay and innocent and heartless. Effectively, until we grow up, we don't care about anybody but ourselves. He even goes so far as to attack Mrs. Darling for her unflaggingly unconditional love of her rotten, ungrateful children, though he does think better of this and correct himself nearer the end. This final third in particular seems to be the point of view of a man breaking down and railing against both the chains of responsibility that life brings and the detestable people who shake them off. 
Peter is most definitely depicted as a dislikable little savage who callously forgets that Tinkerbell even existed after her apparent death some years later in the epilogue. Barry is keen to point out that the dog dies, that Mrs. Darling dies, and the children grow up and Peter doesn't care a jot. It's uncomfortable and neither Lyra or myself enjoyed it. Perhaps that was the point and everybody for a century has missed it. The Disney version is surprisingly faithful to what is written, but for me, and this was true when I was a child as well, gets bogged down with buffoonery and sacrifices drama for cloying sweetness. It's also uncomfortably racially ignorant. Their casual, silly red man depiction of what can only be described as Indians was fairly customary for the time as westerns were still big business and the culture of the genocide-diminished Native Americans was still far off from being accepted as something to be treated with dignity and tact. Unfortunately, the source material is even worse, with this particular passage being the one that made me explode. It starts with the term redskin, which is used for the Indians throughout the book, then throws in piccanini, which happens to be derogatory gollywog-level slang for a black child. Top this off with the following dialogue from Princess Tiger Lily. Me Tiger Lily! That lovely creature would reply, Peter Pan save me, me his very nice friend, me no let pirates hurt him. It's impossible not to tie this up with pig ignorant early 20th century Fu Manchu Chinese stereotypes. Peter then responds condescendingly as she's just a silly girl to him. So this passage was the perfect storm of monumental cultural ignorance, rampant colonialism and patronising sexism, as well as bafflingly inaccurate language and terminology. Basically, it offends every sensibility I have. Next to that, the Disney film is almost progressive. Almost. Wendy never strays from being a dutiful housewife and mother to all the boys, and very little is actually achieved by the narrative. The kids go on a rollicking adventure and then go home for supper. Not so the 2003 version. This film is all about Wendy. Peter is very possible to interpret as a mental construct and the whole story has been subtly pitched as fear of her own oncoming adulthood. It is done so in a way that retains everything that's wonderful about the original story, preserving many of the additions by Disney along the way, even cheekily referencing the Pirates of the Caribbean, which also came out that year, as well as lifting from the many plays and books that were written in the interim century. This creates a wonderful, textured, multi-layered, ultimate version of Peter Pan that never contradicts the source text, but will sadly never be as well-known or highly regarded as Disney's fluffy offering. I'll focus on what this film adds to proceedings. We begin with a reminder that Wendy is not yet 13, a very carefully worded statement that sets up a ticking clock counting down to a change that is impossible to escape. They then layer on Wendy's social responsibilities as her aunt Millicent, an entirely new addition, urges her to prepare for womanhood and the greatest adventure of all, to find a respectable husband. 
This version of Wendy is having none of it. While she still tells her brothers John and Michael entrancing stories, she gets right into the roleplay action and positions herself as a pirate named Red-Handed Jill, a spin on John's Red-Handed Jack, mentioned in passing in the original text, wherein she tells grisly tales of Captain Hook, a man firmly entrenched in her mind as a fascinating villain. The film riffs on Mary Poppins, focusing on Mr. Darling's position in the bank and embarrassment at his children's behaviour, along with Millicent's urgings that it is better to be dead than gossiped about by the neighbours. Heaven forfend! Mrs. Darling, played with absolute charm and loveliness by the sixth sense's Olivia Williams, is in possession of something called a hidden kiss, which resides in the right corner of her mouth and which Wendy could never get. It appears Wendy has a hidden kiss of her own, and she is told by Millicent she must save this for her husband. She offers a regular kiss to Peter, but this is confused with a thimble, and never gets given properly. Mrs. Darling tells a story of how George, the children's father, possesses a different kind of bravery. The kind that steals men to sacrifice what they want the most for the people they love and have responsibility for. She tells them that long ago he put the things he wanted to do in a drawer, and that from time to time they are taken out to be admired. But each time it gets harder and harder to put them back in the drawer. I can barely conceive of any adult engaging with this and not welling up a little at this stage. All new, though borrowed in tone, from the great Mary Poppins again. Before Pan flies them off to Neverland through candy-coloured skies and starlight hung with planets, Wendy stops to look back into the nursery knowing that she is leaving behind everything she is supposed to care about, but yearning badly for escape and adventure. Peter flies up behind her and whispers, Forget them, Wendy. The music swells, and young Rachel Hurdwood smiles right from her very middle. Her performance as Wendy is so honest and so heartfelt, elevating and evolving the character beyond the mother in a pinafore she has always been. played by Jeremy Sumter, a rightfully punchable little oik who captures his mischief and arrogance, but also a brittle uncertainty that he keeps barely hidden. On the surface, he makes us all feel like Captain Hook, but stick with him and you'll find a lost soul afforded godhood by a mythical land that freezes and thaws at his comings and goings. A child uncomprehending of his true power and living life absolutely in the moment in a way that is both enviable and pitiable. He is also Wendy's animus, the masculine side of herself that wants to be a pirate and never wants to grow up and take on the crushing responsibilities that she can see have not only weighed down her father, but turned him into a man who by his own admission has to be feared by children. As far as she's concerned, adulthood turns you into Hook, and this whole adventure is about her enveloping herself in pan and diving deep into one extreme of existence to escape her fears of the other. Lending further weight to this psychoanalysis, as is the tradition on stage and in the Disney version, the actor who plays Hook also plays Wendy's father, in this case the wonderful Jason Isaacs, long accustomed now to playing the pompous British villain. 
He tap dances with seasoned brilliance between comedy and malevolence, never letting us forget that he wishes Pan dead, yet seemingly aware on some subconscious level that this is not the natural order of things. The natural order is that Pan destroys Hook, takes over the ship, the Lost Boys kill the pirates and put on their clothes, they remain boisterous and responsibility-free, but age to adulthood and a new pan and new Lost Boys appear to wage war in Neverland and keep the balance. Hook is merely playing his part. This all plays out in both original text, with some really disturbing child-on-pirate murder, and the animated and live-action films, but in all cases the chain is broken as the ship flies off back to London to drop off the Lost Boys and Wendy, John and Michael to the warmth of a mother and father, leaving Pan alone in an unbalanced and pirate-free Neverland. This has always bothered me. Tinkerbell is played by Ludwig Signer, and as well as being a source of fun and Pan's own mischievous anima within an animus, Wendy's layers just keep on going, her purpose is to die. Wendy needs to feel the sting and the threat that the spark of joy she's holding onto can be snuffed out. Even though she does not take part in the death of Tink, she orchestrated it in part by arranging the medicine that Peter is to drink. Wendy doesn't really know what medicine is or what it is for. In fact, in this case, she just uses water to torture the lost boys with what she perceives as what adults do, forcing the children to accept something yucky for their own good. It is this overexertion of her growing parental control that leads to the medicine being the receptacle for Hook's poison, distilled from the red tears he sheds when gutting unfortunates and made up of his jealousy, his malice and his disappointment. All childish feelings exacerbated and amplified as we grow older unless we deal with them ourselves. Tink comes between the medicine and Peter, sacrificing herself for the worst aspects of adulthood from a child's eyes. This puts out Tinkerbell, and Peter is left alone in darkness and anguish, the Neverland growing cold and stormy as a result. In the Disney version, this was replaced with a bomb, and Tink dying was taken out so as not to upset the children. Peter escapes the bomb off-camera and reappears on the pirate ship with all drama carefully scissored out. They of course missed that Tinkerbell's rebirth was key. In the play, they address the audience and ask the children to proclaim that they do believe in fairies. This is far too risky for a film as the silent response from a jaded audience should leave the little pixie in the land of the dead. However, they instead have Peter proclaim over and over, I do believe in fairies. I do, I do. This has a knock-on effect all over Neverland and beyond, as one after the other, the entire cast join in, surprised at these involuntary proclamations.
it is a masterful scene, as what fairies represent here can be entirely reinterpreted by the viewer. It could be magic, or god, or aliens, or parallel worlds where this very thing could take place. It doesn't matter, and it is entirely subjective. It simply comes down to a choice as to whether to hold on to that thing and keep a spot of brightness and the unexplained in your existence, or not. And as this reaches a crescendo, I always find myself muttering along with them because I do believe in fairies. I do. I do. Tinkerbell is saved, as is Wendy's faith that she can hold on to that spark into adulthood. This is further tested in the dramatic fight climax where Hook and Pan fly around the Jolly Roger, evenly matched, until Hook informs Peter that Wendy was leaving him. He flashes forward to a day when Wendy is grown up and another man is in her life. She calls him husband. The boy sinks, his joy leaving him, and Wendy has to prevent Hook from murdering him right there on the deck with a plea for a final thimble. The kiss she gives him, she confides, is only ever for him, stating her resolve to hold on to that rebellious part of herself, to never give herself over completely to being a dutiful wife, and to retain her identity and independence in a society that would see all women in support roles kind of ironic considering who was just queen. Peter then defeats Hook by teasing him that he is old, alone and done for, two of Peter's own worst fears of isolation and ageing. The crocodile eating him is merely the icing on the cake, although its ticking clock motif is duly noted as the inevitability of ageing. Peter breaks Hook's spirit, further strengthening the parallel between them. Hook's pirates are gone. Peter's lost boys are about to go and become found in a new home. The third point of death, however, is not so much a fear. In fact, as was originally written in the novel, Pan feels to die would be an awfully big adventure. However, here he gazes through the curtains at a happy and expanding new family, with even a new son for the covetous old Aunt Millicent, who has found her true nurturing purpose. Pan mutters to himself that to live would be an awfully big adventure. This leaves us with a wonderful note of ambiguity to end on. Pan could give in to this desire to take part in all of life's trials and rewards, perhaps precipitating the events of Hook, or he could avoid it forever and remain the boy who never grew up. But as we all know, the choice is not binary. There can be a measured response that exists between the two extremes, and finding our own personal balance is what defines us.